everybody. Howdy, howdy. Welcome to this bonus episode of the Forte Catholic Podcast. Doing something a little bit different today. It's not one of our regular shows, not one of our numbered shows, because it is very different. And uh, I had a fascinating conversation with this guy named Dan that I knew from back in my time in San Antonio from 2008 to 2012. We ran in a lot of the similar, a lot of similar circles. We went to the same church, did some ministry stuff together, and we got to know each other in that time. And he was in formation to become a priest, and then he discerned out of that, and then a lot of things changed. And we're going to talk about his story of faith. This is a, a long-form interview with him, pretty similar vein to what a uh, guest we've had on the show, Tony Vicinda does, on what he on his Threshold podcast. If you haven't checked it out yet, that podcast is phenomenal. What he does is he interviews people from all different walks of faith, people who are practicing Catholics, people who are formerly practicing Catholics that are not practicing anything anymore, Protestants, uh, atheists, uh, Muslims, Jewish people, like, and just listening to their stories of faith. So what I'm doing here with Dan is simply just having a conversation with him, just like he and I would have over a beer, like he actually is drinking a beer, and sadly I didn't have one, uh, but just a conversation about, okay, what has his faith journey looked like? Because he, you know, was a practicing Catholic all th- throughout his life, was in formation, uh, discerned out, which is fine. And then now to where it's about seven or eight late y- years later when I reconnected with him at the ordination that I went to this last weekend, uh, just very di- his views on faith have changed. His views on the church have changed. There's been a lot of a lot of hurt there and a lot of like searching. Like he's searching for truth, and I think you'll hear that throughout the interview. So. What this is, is a conversation with my friend. What this is not is, it's not apologetics. I'm not trying to argue with him. I'm not going to try to convert him back to Catholicism in this conversation. I just want to hear his story. I'm fascinated by it because I think he and I are very similar at our core. Uh, a lot of the same the struggles that he has had, I have had as well. And we've just we've just gone in different paths, and it's very fascinating to me. So as you're listening... Uh, first of all, I hope that you enjoy it. It's something very different than what we normally do, but I enjoyed it. Uh, Sam, our producer, enjoyed it. She actually listened to the show. She doesn't listen to most of the other ones. And uh, I hope that as you listen, you'll hear some of the things that he's saying. I, I think you'll be able to relate to a lot of it. And then you can start thinking, how would you respond to some of these things? How do you deal with some of these um some of his struggles, how do you deal with those in your own personal life? How can this conversation uh, help you grow in your faith? Where are the areas that you you can see growth in from this conversation? And uh, how can we as a church be better? How can we um, share the love of Christ better with those that we come in contact with uh, so that we're not pushing people away? So I think that you'll hear that he's... Uh, He's searching for truth. That's what we're all trying to do. Um, so without further ado, here it goes, me and my conversation with my buddy Dan about his faith. Let me know what you think. Uh, we'll just start. To, I'll, I can add the music later if we need to. Okay, no, that, that's a better idea. You do the intro music. We're starting <laughs> in three, two, one. This is Catholic Radio. 
All right. Welcome to a special edition of Forte Catholic with already special intro music from our friend Dan. Dan, how are you doing this evening, sir? I'm doing very well, Taylor. Thank you very much for having me on your show. I definitely appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you uh, asked that I call you sir, so I will be referring to you as Mr. Sir from Holes this entire time. <laughs> <laughs> That's very respectful of you. I, I will continue this interview. I wasn't sure, but since you've shown the utmost respect to me, uh, which I deserve more than anything else in the world, I will allow you the privilege of continuing to speak with me on this interview. Thank you, Mr. Sir from Holes. We met uh, back... <laughs> I've called a hole before. <laughs> Uh, we've met back doing radio stuff, actually, back in 2010 in good old San Antonio. We ran in some <laughs> similar circles in some, hey. some some ministry stuff, similar parishes that we were a part of. Um, and you were, I met when I met you, you were discern, discerning an information to become a priest. That's and, true. And yeah, that's true. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to get into that a little bit later. Uh, essentially, what we're going to be talking about is your story of faith, of how, how you came to faith, your struggles with your faith. Uh, I think it's going to be a fascinating conversation. I, I'm truly interested in your story because we reconnected this last week. We did. Uh, we did. At an ordination of our friend, fa now Father Sean Stilson. All right. Yeah. Yeah. We did, yeah Congratulations, he, he, Father Sean. He did it. He's a great, great guy. We uh, we knew we both knew him and were close with him uh, back in the day. And then we I, I left town, and uh, yeah, it was just nice to reconnect with you and see you again. Um, and I knew kind of back in like I think while I was still there, you had discerned out of of. Uh, the priesthood. So you were, yep. you, you left formation and I knew at that time it was, uh, what, what year was that when you, when you discerned out? Sure. I actually, well, I entered in 2008 and I was there for just under two years and I left uh, my consecrated community. I hadn't uh, taken vows or anything like that. It was still very early in the formation and I left, I believe in June of 2010. So gotcha. 2010. Gotcha. And I left the city in, in early 2020 mid 2012 so what i knew at that time is i knew that you were struggling i knew it was kind of i heard that it was kind of ugly with this with the whole with with you leaving and, and I, like we we have some friends <laughs> who have left the who have left the you know discerning the priesthood and formation for the priesthood and i know that that's hard for anybody and i think it was particularly yeah. hard for you uh, but i really didn't know the context of anything it's one of those things it's like well it's not really any of my business, um, but I, I, I heard a few things. But I, I, so I, what I'd like to do is, is hear, hear your story, <laughs> and uh, yeah, exactly. So w when you and I uh, reconnected, we were, you know, we were. You started to share a few things, and then we kind of ran out of time because you had to get to work. Ironically enough, at a radio station, so you're you're still doing that, and I'm still doing this. So um, how we met is still a big part of both of our lives, and. Uh, you 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 shared with me that you had about your recent this is your words recent almost complete deconversion from Catholicism and then in parentheses right. yeah a lot has changed with me in the last few years <laughs> so we've kind of set up the context of this and what I would like for this to be is just hearing your story of faith what went well what didn't go well what led to to that sentence and 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 why right so. I just want to go through your life. So let's just start at the beginning, at, in your childhood and your youth. What was faith like to you? What was Catholicism to you? 
Well, if I could, I want to just step back just real sure. quick and just uh, mention uh, when I left my religious community, I actually did not leave on bad circumstances. I actually left on very good circumstances. I wasn't kicked out and uh, or anything like that. And I think I could still be there today if I wanted to. It was um, it was my decision. The priests and the brothers that I lived with were great men, great priests. And I wasn't in trouble with them or anything. Um, and yeah, they they would have supported me staying if I wanted to stay. And they supported me leaving when I decided to leave. So there wasn't any like big scandal or anything like that. I just, you know, for some very personal reasons, I decided, you know, I don't think I'm taking this as seriously right now as I should. And then I left, you know, so it wasn't like a big, bad thing. I don't want anyone to think that um, I left under bad circumstances or anything. Now, I've left other ministries under bad circumstances, <laughs> but definitely, definitely not the, uh, the the group of priests that I was with. Uh, I left under good circumstances, and I'm very, very thankful for the time I spent there. And, uh, yeah, I have nothing bad to say about those guys. So I just want to clarify that. Yeah, sure. They're phenomenal men. And a, a part of my, they're a big part of my story because I fought against the priesthood for my entire life. I was like, no, I like women too much. This is crazy. And I fought with right. God for a year. And during that year, I found those priests and they became a big part of my life and my discernment. I, you know, would, would, eat, would go and visit the community, eat and pray with them at least once a month and just kind of seeing what their life was like. And they were praying with me and like kind of mentoring me and talking me through things. And then at the end of that year, I finally just gave up and was like, okay, God, if you want me to be a priest, I'll be open to be a priest. And a week later I met my now wife. So <laughs> that's kind of, right. kind of crazy. So yeah, they're, uh, they're good men. They've, they've been influential in my life as well. Well, you know what? Actually, how that's how it goes. I mean, I I didn't leave the community in order to get, uh, <laughs> you know, to to date the person who I eventually married. But I did end up starting to date the woman who I eventually married, like a week after I left that house. After I left, so it wasn't planned that way. So it was kind of like the same thing with you. It's like, all right, well, God, give me a sign, and okay, I guess I'm called to be married. So. And that way, you and I have a lot in common. <laughs> that, isn't that kind of crazy that for both yeah. of us, it was a week? Interesting, interesting. <laughs> but you asked about my childhood. You know, I grew up in a very kind of moderate Catholic household. I mean, faith was part of – it was a part of our life. We went to church on Sundays, but we weren't really, like, intensely Catholic. We didn't pray the rosary or anything like that. But it was definitely expected that we would go to Mass every week and that we would go to CCD class – and all that kind of stuff get confirmed on time and all that. So that was kind of my experience growing up. I started in my confirmation preparation when I was a teen. I started getting more intensely Catholic and getting more into it. And in my early 20s, I started listening to Catholic radio and getting in the EWTN, which was a long time ago because I'm not into either of those things anymore. No offense to your radio stations, but um, <laughs> we'll get into that a little bit later. D don't worry. This but, isn't going on the radio. It'll just be on the oh, podcast. Good. Oh, it's fine. curse up a storm here. All right, fine. Uh, the gloves are off. So we, I we do have a beep button. Sam, do you have our bleep out button? You want to get that ready? Oh, yeah. We don't have the iPad plugged in because oh, you're plugged in in the other one. So we can't bleep oh, you, you out. you can't sense me. I wait for post-production. Well, okay, so basically the quick story is that uh, in my early 20s, I really decided that I, I, I was going to be a priest. I didn't know anything about discernment. I thought you just basically show up and you're a priest. Uh, I thought you just go up to a community or a diocese and say, hey, I'm here. I'm here to be a priest. And that's kind of how I took my discernment. And eventually I ended up meeting uh, 
Father George Montague, who was the head of the religious order that I eventually joined. He was speaking at a conference in California. And in 2008, I moved from California to Texas to join this religious community and to uh, discern priesthood. I didn't know that. I, I thought you, I just assumed that you grew up in San Antonio and had some connection. Oh. I didn't realize you oh. came all the way from California. That's crazy. I changed my entire, I left everybody I knew. Wow. Uh, all my family and friends were in California. Literally, when I moved to Texas, when I moved to San Antonio, the only people I knew were the four priests I had met. Wow. Uh, when I came, uh, it was a few months before I'd come out to kind of visit the community to see how I liked it and how they liked me. And when I moved all my stuff to Texas, I knew four people, the priests. That was it. I changed my entire life to pursue this uh, priesthood, possible priesthood vocation. So I kind of want to emphasize that because based on what I plan to say later, it may sound like I'm really down on Catholicism and that I wasn't really serious. But, yeah, I was super serious. Yeah, you I was moved across serious. country and didn't know anybody. That's yeah. that's, that's, that's yeah. crazy. And like that, I'm, I'm sitting here listening. I'm like, that is crazily a- admirable. Yeah. I mean, to like to g- give up everything to go to go follow this is is crazy. Right. <clears throat> so, what? Yeah. So you went to the. You you talked about like the lead up to the formation. So you were like, yeah. I I just said I'm going to be a priest now, and you thought they gave you magical yeah. powers immediately. Instead, they said this I, yeah, is actually exactly. a seven year process. You know, right? And and and, and, and you know, discernment is kind of like it's kind of like dating someone. You don't just go, oh hey, um, want to go on a date? Hey, or let's get married tomorrow. You don't do that. You get to know the person, and you kind of slowly decide, okay, do I fit with them? Do they fit with me? And just like in a dating relationship. Just because the relationship doesn't work out doesn't mean you're never going to date someone. Or in the term, in terms of the priesthood, if you join a community or if you join a seminary with a diocese and you don't really like mesh well with that community, it doesn't mean that you're not called to be a priest or that you're a bad person or you're not dedicated. It just means that it's not the right time, the right place. You know, if I hadn't met my wife, maybe I would have later returned to the community or gone to another community or, or whatever. I don't regret getting married. I love being married. Ultimately, I do believe that being married for me was definitely better than being a priest. But, you know, there's so many circumstances. That's my point. There's so many circumstances and reasons why someone would want to join a seminary or a community or want to leave. And a lot of it's kind of random, you know, so it's not like we not like we go, OK, I'm going to be a priest and here I go. It doesn't work like that. There's discernment all around for a long time before you get ordained. Yeah, it's interesting because I think about it a lot of times like as a job, like you could you could be a gr- great computer technician, you could be f- do phenomenal work at Google or Facebook or or you know wherever, but some of these places you'd be a better fit, you know, you could you could do some right. if you fit well at Facebook, you could do some mediocre if you you do some great work if as better than if you were at Google and you did some mediocre work because you're like, yeah, I'm still the same person, but I fit better over here. So, um, during your formation, what was your faith life like during formation? What did formation do for you? Well, you know, uh, formation actually really helped me later, I think, become a better husband because I had to learn that I was not the center of the universe, especially when you live in a religious community. They don't, Ego doesn't really survive very well in a religious community because it doesn't matter how much of a badass priest you are. And if, and if you are booked at conferences everywhere and you're famous and you have books, nobody in that community treats you any differently. We're all guys. We're all just you're just one of the guys. So 
a lot of times I noticed when I was living at the church there in the community, the priests just get their butts kissed all the time. Oh, it was so great. Father is such a great homily. And you're just so wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. But it was very refreshing that no matter how much, you know, applause the priests got when they came into the house, they were just another member of the community. Nobody had special treatment and everybody was treated equally. So it kind of helped me remember that, hey, like you're not the center of the universe and that what I do affects the community. And when you live in a community, people rely on you. You got to be there for prayer time. There's times that you're assigned to cook. You can't just decide, hey, I'm not feeling good. I'm not going to cook for you guys because then <laughs> no you don't want a bunch of hungry priests. Not good. Not good. Not a good situation. <laughs> so I really learned that it's really important to just even little things like getting up early, showing up on time. It sounds kind of really elementary, but these are things I struggled with at that time in my life. But and honestly, and kind of on a side note, kind of a funny thing where ever since I was in religious formation and now this was like 10 years ago i can never sleep in even if i want to even if i have nothing to do the next day because i got so used to being up early for prayer every morning that for the life of me i cannot sleep in i haven't slept in past 9 a.m or 10 in like 15 years i would just like <laughs> one day i just want to wake up and it'd be 11 o'clock in the morning that would be so fun but I, I just can't do that anymore because my body is trained like we got to do something in the morning. So, and you know, we, we went to mass every morning, every morning. I've been to more masses, I think, than most people have been in a lifetime. I am masked <laughs> out. So it was part of the formation. Every morning you go to mass, you know, so it was it was definitely intense in a good way, I think. <laughs> That's it's kind of hilarious. Like I've always been fascinated like by the life of priests and by the lives of seminarians because when you learn all these things that are doing mass every day, I'm like, geez, Louise, I'm yeah. I'm bored one hour a week or maybe two <laughs> if I go to a, a daily or right. one and a half if I go to a daily mass or something. Right. But um, every single day, like the monotony of it, like how like, and I've asked those priests this, I've asked other priests this, and it truly is just I think it is just a, a gift from God that, that they receive because I'm a lay person who's married and, and works in ministry. I'm not. I'm not required by my uh, vocation to go to mass every day to say the liturgy of the hours every day. Yeah. Um, but priests are, and so I don't have that grace. I don't have that charism. I don't have that gift. However, you want to say it, I'm not built for that. And so I'm amazed by these by these men and women who who are and who do right. have that, and they're and they find fulfillment in it. I'm fascinated by it. Um, you know, you mentioned the liturgy of the hours, and after you know, jumping ahead, after I left the community. I actually struggled with scrupulosity in terms of I felt bad when I wasn't at mass every day and when I wasn't praying liturgy of the hours. I prayed liturgy of the hours. I continued to even into uh, the first couple of years of my marriage with my wife. We prayed liturgy of the hours. We, we don't anymore. I barely pray about anything anymore. But, uh, you know, it was something that it was a hard habit to break. It was a good habit, but it was very <laughs> weird. It felt weird to. It felt, yeah, get it? It felt <laughs> weird to only go to Mass once a week. Like, once a week? Oh, my gosh, what a heathen, only going to Mass once a week. <laughs> oh, Lord. So that was actually a, a practice that was difficult for me to kind of, you know, snap out of and kind of become a normal, regular layperson. Yeah, I think that's interesting, and I think we'll get more into it as we continue to go, but how I know that if I went to Mass every day, if I prayed Liturgy Hours every day, I would get tired of doing it and I'd stop it completely. 
Um, I know that about myself and like, you know, like you've already shared that you, you did that. And I think, yeah. I think it's hard. And I think that's one thing that, uh, you and I have, have both struggled with in, in the church in trying to, you know, these times of trying to grow in holiness, trying to become a better man of, I, I know that this works for a lot of people. Like this doesn't work for me. Yeah. It's, it's, and it actually has been detrimental at times. It's one of those weird things. You try to be better and it actually ends up hurting you. Um, but you know what, Taylor? I, I think that's that's a difficult uh, thing that a lot of Catholics encounter because sometimes well-meaning Catholics, when they in their own life find a prayer practice that works good for them, maybe praying the rosary every day or going to adoration every day, in their desire to help other Catholics and encourage other Catholics, they start saying, well, you know what? You need to pray the rosary every day. You need to go to adoration every day. It works for me. It should work for you. And sometimes when people don't want to adopt our own you know, the, the prayer devotions that we like, we go, oh, I don't know what's wrong with them. So that could be a difficult thing there too. And I think sometimes a lot of Catholics have a lot of guilt. There's a theme, Catholic guilt, have a lot of guilt <laughs> about, yeah, I don't like to pray the rosary or I don't like to pray liturgy of the hours or I don't like mass. I think it's boring. And like you said, not every prayer practice, not every spirituality habit will work for everybody. It's not one size fits all. It's, it's, I think you're absolutely right because I've talked about this a bunch of times before. How I think one of the greatest gifts of the church is the many different ways to pray. Is the that you know the rosary could work for you, liturgy hours can work for somebody else, mass can work for somebody else, praying with scripture can work for somebody else. But like just for me personally, praying with scripture has always been my thing, which kind of makes me the oddball out in Catholicism because of the old adage that you know Catholics don't know their Bible and all these kinds of things. I, I stereotypes, guess, Taylor. You're spreading terrible, terrible oh, stereotypes, and, you, and you're not. <laughs> well, I try to. Yeah, I, I hope. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, like. Praying with scripture has always been my thing. I uh, I struggle with the rosary. I'm not a big rosary prayer. I've done times where it's like, okay, I know I'm weak in this, so I'm going to do it to kind of try to expand my boundaries. And there was a little bit of growth there, but then it kind of faded away because it just wasn't how I connect with God. But it can be for other people. And like one of the things that I've learned through, like you're saying, like people trying to sh- like shove the rosary down my throat, both... F- Literally and metaphorically, that right? That's got to hurt. That's <laughs> yeah, really rude. Very That's painful. Very dangerous, too, I imagine. It's why I keep having to clear my throat. There's still a piece of that rosary <laughs> stuck in my throat. Uh, but it's just like, you know, you ha- to be holy, you have to pray a rosary. And it's like, I don't, I don't think that's the case. I still need to, you know, like anything, I need to be open to it. I need to try it. I need to I mean, probably do it every now and then. But that's not the way that I connect with God the most. Like, why try to force something when I can, when I can connect with God? In adoration, like adoration has been a big one throughout my life, and praying with scripture has been a big one throughout my life, or music, right? But the rosary, literally, the hours is kind of one of those like middle of the road. It's like every now and then I like it, but if I do it too much, then I start to not like it. So, yeah. Um, what what led up to? So you're in formation for two years. What led up to right. you leaving formation? <laughs> it's actually it's it's not nearly as scandalous as you may imagine. So maybe I should just tell the story because I've had people ask me like. Why did you leave? And like, and you, and you, when you don't tell them, it's like, oh, it must be something really scandalous. Here's what happened. Uh, I was in early formation. I was taking regular classes at San Antonio College, and I got an F in my English class. I failed, got an F. And I had a moment of clarity, and I, and I said, you know what? 
I'm not taking, even though that wasn't officially part of my formation, it was still expected that I would do these undergrad classes so that I can eventually get some sort of theology degree or whatever, or, or you know, philosophy mm-hmm. degree. And I, I told myself, hey, Dan, if you're here living in this community and you, you're not, not even getting a bad grade in this lower division English class, but you get an F, you're not taking this seriously. So for me, that was kind of the last straw and going, you know what, I really need to really reevaluate what I want to be doing here. And, you know, and there, there could be a lot of reasons why someone would fail a class. There could be learning disabilities or it could just be study habits or whatever. But whatever it was, there was something that needed to be addressed. And, you know, I know that's not super scandalous. There was no sex scandal or money laundering or embezzlement. So maybe so I should boring. make it up. Maybe, that'd be, maybe that would be a better, <laughs> that'd be a better story than me just failing an English It class, would be but. a better story, but I, I, I'm glad that this is the road that you that you picked. And that's it. You know, that was honestly, that was, you know, that wasn't like the only thing, but that was kind of like the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back going, okay, Dan, you're not taking this seriously and it's okay. Maybe it's time to move on. And cause honestly, at that point in my life, I had never lived anywhere else besides my parents' house and with the religious community. I had never been on my own and literally, uh, let's see, I moved out of the community on June 6, 2010. And I remember that specifically because it was my 30th birthday and I moved in with a friend. Wait, happy birthday. Was, Tomorrow's your birthday. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I just gave away my security questions on some website. So please don't have me. <laughs> but um, and I and that that day on June 6, 2010 was my 30th birthday. And it was the first time in my life that I'd ever paid rent to somebody. And I and I finally, you know, I go, you know what? I need to grow up. I need to be on my own. I need to you know, get a job. I think I had been just kind of cruising in my 20s going, okay, I don't need to be responsible right now because eventually I'll calm down and go be a priest. And when that didn't work out, uh, I I told myself, hey, Dan, you really got to try to figure out what to do with your life here. And uh, eight years later, I'm still trying, but uh, definitely then that was definitely a a turning point in my life. Okay. So you left – almost what that's tomorrow will be eight years eight years eight year anniversary of uh the brothers of above the disciple getting an upgrade yes we were just i was <laughs> I just i was just being scolded by uh by t- today's other guest uh, that I use too much self-deprecating humor so I can just hear her yelling at you right now okay uh, so, so I will insult you instead if that makes good. you feel better yeah please Whatever would help please the show go along I, I will I will do for you Taylor oh yeah if we just fought it would just be great um, <laughs> let, let's just fight later okay but f- we will for now no we won't fight. we'll just good. discuss for, for discuss. now for now we'll uh, let's talk about like that first year. So yeah. I, I want to talk about since what's led up to obviously today, but that first year, what was that first year? Like what's going through your head? What changes are happening? What is Dan like the year after he leaves the formation? Well, you know, I was really kind of like lost because I really didn't have any job prospects and I was still actually being supported by my parents. They would send me some money and I would just kind of, you know, I was lucky to be able to find some cheap rooms with friends and acquaintances to, to rent. But I was really kind of struggling with my identity because, like I said, I had really spent a lot of my years, my adult years, really being convinced that I was going to be a priest. So I was getting used to this idea of going, oh, I don't know what's going to happen now. How am I going to support myself? And how am I going to, you know, what am I going to do with my life? And it was a very, 
it was a very trying time. It was, it was a time that I felt a lot of despair, honestly. And I think, um, you know, my, my now wife, my girlfriend at the time, she was able to help me through a lot of that stuff because I, w- I was just really kind of lost. I just, you know, if, if you think your life's going to go one way and it kind of just doesn't work out and that's you, you didn't have a plan B because you thought that's what was going to happen. It could be very disorienting. Yeah, I, I can only imagine Sam and I have a, a friend that uh, left the left the seminary after I think it was a year I think it was two years yeah. year or two something like that Sam's shaking her head yes um, and we we got to live with like work with him live with him he was a part of both of our lives and we saw him struggle in that yeah. year or two after and now he's doing well now he's now he's in school he has a, he has a girlfriend things are seem to be going a lot better for him but we we experienced the struggle so I, I just I I know that that can be hard and the same types of things like you were saying, who am I? What's my identity? Because for so long, at least for him, it was like people saw him as the seminarian. So he came back and, you know, left, left the seminary. It's like, Oh, I failed. Or maybe people will see me as a failure or a quitter or whatever. Um, So yeah, I I haven't experienced that, but I've been able to see you walk pretty closely with somebody that did. So I I can't Mm -hmm. imagine. So you get, you're struggling that year. You start dating your girlfriend, you get married, when we got married, I, I got to be careful not to give away another one of my security questions, <laughs> but we, uh, we got married late in the year in 2011, 2011. We'll say that. Okay. So you got, you got married in 2011. So you've been married for seven years. Did I do the math right? Yeah. Almost seven years. Cool. So, yeah. um, now, now you get to absolutely control the story. So we left Uh-oh. off. We left left off one year after you left the seminary. You're in this t- period of struggling. Your girlfriend's helping you along, trying to figure out who you right. are, paying rent for the first time. All these things. So from there until now, you can g- go however you want in the story. <laughs> what led to you writing this email to me about your recent, almost complete deconversion from Catholicism? Walk us through those seven, six, seven years. Well, I, I think uh, the way I saw my faith really just was slowly chipping away through various experiences. And, you know, and to, to, to clarify, when I left my priest formation in 2010, I had, I don't remember having any qualms about Catholicism. I, I considered myself a pretty conservative Orthodox Catholic. I believed what the church believed. I accepted the church's doctrines, even those ones that aren't politically correct. I accepted all of those. And that wasn't my struggle at all. Um, you know, I, I was in some other ministry situations that didn't work out. I, I don't want to get into that right now, because uh, <laughs> I've said enough about that in other forums, and I don't, I don't want to rehash those old wounds. Uh, but I started to really kind of question what the church taught, and, and kind of like, why do I believe what the church teaches? And one thing for me was the issue of same-sex attraction, homosexuality, LGBT rights, that kind of thing. And for me, I was always someone who never wanted to be mean to gay people, but I, I really did accept the church's teaching that marriage should be only should be between a man and a woman. And that didn't really start to crack in me until I got married myself. And I noticed how beautiful and wonderful it is to legally and spiritually share your life with someone and have your relationship with someone be recognized by the community. Marriage is the best thing that ever happened to me. And pretty soon after that, I kind of decided that I could no longer in good conscience 
work to deny someone that right to get legally married. Obviously, this is before mar- gay marriage was legalized in the United States. But I kind of decided after I got married that I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't publicly tell someone, "Hey, you can't get married." Now. I still thought it was wrong. I still thought gay marriage was wrong, but I thought, hey, I'm not going to get in the way of someone's civil marriage. What they do in court is none of my business. Uh, later on, I, I, as President Obama said, I evolved, and I'm now to the point where I don't find any objection to gay relationships. But that was definitely one of the things that kind of jump-started my deconversion, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. It does make sense. Uh, what else was going on? Um, I, I guess, you know, and this is, this is a terrible reason for not believing in religion anymore, but I had a lot of bad experiences with people, with Catholics. And I, I was surrounded by, I want to say surrounded, but I, I was in some Catholic circles where I really felt like I was treated like my faith was deficient. Like if I had questions about the faith, then that meant that I wasn't loyal to the faith. There was a lot of kind of this environment of like, you got to be loyal. You got to vote Republican because Republicans are pro-life and you got to believe this. You got to hate president Obama because he's the devil. Somebody, (laughs) a Catholic told me that he literally thought Obama was the literal devil or, or one of his helpers. He can no, 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 it's not Obama. It's Draymond green of the golden state warriors. (laughs) Well, that too, this was a few years ago, but you know, so I'm joking by the way, just in case people think I'm being serious. I think it's but you know, I, I started noticing that a lot of Catholicism, at least in the circles that I was exposed to, a lot of being Catholic was associated with a lot of fear and a lot of tribalism, a lot of like, we are right and they're wrong and we're doing the faith correctly. Those people are wrong. The Protestants are wrong. The atheists are wrong. The liberals are wrong. The gays are wrong. And we need to fix them because we're better. And I began to find that attitude to be repellent. I, I, I was disgusted by it because it didn't reflect the faith that was taught to me as a child of Jesus loving everybody. It seemed to be like this tribalistic BS that was more politically motivated than Christ motivated. And really, that was kind of like one of the major things that really soured me on Catholicism. Yeah, and it, it's, it's kind of interesting because like I, that's the one that I kind of figured was was the answer just from from knowing you and the brief conversations that we had around that time and then in talking to you and and knowing some of the people that you didn't like and didn't like you and yeah and i i'd say jokingly but like in every joke there's some truth and i think there's a lot of truth in this is like for me i say i love catholicism I just don't like Catholics, you know, so <laughs> yeah, it's like and, right. and there's obviously I'm joking. There are Catholics that I like, but there are a lot of Catholics that do turn me off to Catholicism yeah. and and uh, but by some of the things that you were saying, it's like, you know, you have to do this. It's it's all you know, it's one of those things that, you know, the, you mentioned the Republican Democrat thing. It's like right. it's really hard for me to vote because. I agree with half of what the Republicans say and half of what the Democrats say. Who do I vote for? And it actually becomes this huge moral conundrum. And I know there's a lot no of- clear answer. There yeah. is no clear right. answer. If anyone tells you there's a clear answer, they're being political hacks. They're not being Catholics. <laughs> that's what you're trying to say, right, Taylor? Yeah, that's exactly what I was I trying to say. It. I, I know. Yeah. Trying to lead you along here. Yeah, thank you. I'm yeah. I'm just not really <laughs> political, and I don't really care all that much. But um, you got to. You got to. Yeah, I know. That's what I. That's what I hear. And like even Pope Benedict was like, you know. 
you have you have to be uh, uh, you know everything and go vote. And I'm just like, well, I'm very busy. <laughs> very busy. But on a side note, how, how much faith does one really have in their faith in the Catholic Church that we the church we say, okay, it's it's going to be around forever. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. You say that in one breath. One says that in one breath. And then in another breath say, well, we need to vote for Republicans in the next election cycle. Otherwise, the world's going to end. Those <laughs> ideas are not compatible. Do you believe in God or do you not believe in God? You can't say that God is all powerful and will, and will take care of us and the church will always prevail if you think if a Democrat gets in the office, then – the church will be destroyed. That doesn't make any yeah, sense. That, I mean, that's, you know, especially around the whole Obama thing when everybody was like, you know, he's the Antichrist or he's Satan. And it's just like the right. church has withstood, no matter what you think politically, the church has withstood much worse leaders than Obama you know, or yeah. Trump. You know, like I don't care which side of the spectrum that you're on. The church has withstood Nero and terrible leaders in Rome where they were literally right. killing people. It's like, I think we can. I think the church can withstand you know, eight years with Obama and two and a half or whatever it's been with Trump. Yeah. Like the ch- the church will prevail, so that's the thing yeah. to believe, not this political stuff. You know, we used to we used to, we used to be eaten by lions and and lit on fire as torches in Rome. I think maybe we'll survive the HHS mandate or <laughs> or liberal priests speaking at Catholic colleges. I think we'll survive that. We'll probably somehow we'll, we'll prevail. So so here here's how I want to address like that. That uh, struggle that you had with with Catholics and people rubbing you the wrong yeah. way, however you want to say it. So if if you if you were in charge, how do you fix that? How would because like one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on is because I know that you I, I didn't know all the reasons. I figured this was one. I didn't know any of the other ones. And I think we could, if there are more, we can still continue to get into them. But like this one in particular. I think for people that are listening, because most of the people that are listening are practicing Catholics, or at least you know, emphasis emphasize the word practice. We're all right. this, this ain't the game. We're talking about practice. Um, good old Alan Iverson quote there. So, <clears throat> how can we not be like those people that were in in your <laughs> life? How can we, as practicing Catholics, not turn people off by being jerks? So how could we be like that guy in the gospel saying, thank you, Lord, for not making me like those people? Yeah. <laughs> I thought he, the Republican, was that what he's called? Uh, Republican, Republican or Democrat? I'm not Republican. sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I would say that uh, and just just on a even taking theology out of it and, and spirituality and God, any organization that's been around for 2000 years, there's going to be very, very few people who know everything about it. <laughs> Be very, very few experts. So to have the humility to go, you know what? Maybe I'm not an expert on Catholicism. Maybe if I see a priest on Twitter who says things that I think are strange, maybe I should go, well, maybe he knows what he's talking about. Maybe he knows something about Catholic tradition and Catholic teaching that I don't know. There's a lot of hubris, I think, in uh, in enthusiastic Catholic circles, kind of like, well, hey, like, I, you know. I listen to EWTN or I, I read the catechism, so I know everything there he needs to know about Catholicism. And something that's 2,000 years old, you can't know everything about it. So I would say have a little bit of humility to kind of go, okay, well, maybe if somebody is practicing their Catholic faith in a way that seems strange or maybe even wrong to me, maybe I should be more curious instead of being scared. If something is strange, be curious, don't be offended, and maybe you might learn something. That would be the first thing I'd say. <laughs> so, so, so that's the first one. Keep going. I would also say 
that ultimately a lot of the stuff we fight about as Catholics, and I still consider myself as one of the Catholic group, <laughs> as one of the Catholic crew. I'm not, I have not officially defected from the church. Um, a lot of things we fight about online don't really matter. It really doesn't matter what Father James Martin tweets. I mean, it matters. You can have an opinion on it, but it's not going to destroy the church. It really doesn't matter who's speaking at a commencement at Notre Dame or whatever. It doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter if some Catholic women wear bikinis in the summer and some don't. It doesn't matter if some wear veils to mass and some don't. It's a matter of prudential judgment. It doesn't matter. And we need to stop pretending that the way that we practice our Catholicism should be universal for everybody. That's a very narcissistic idea, the idea that everybody needs to practice the faith the way I do. I would say stop that. A note on your first thing, the humility thing. So Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, who yes. you know is is still alive, and you know quit the priest, uh, quit the papacy, or whatever. Um, he, I did a class. Resign. I like to say resign. Uh, yeah, I know. I'm I'm being <laughs> facetious. I I love, I love I love I love Pope Benedict, man. I love him to death. I, uh, he was um, he was the Pope when I was in in undergrad. And I took a class called Pope, the Writings of Pope Benedict XVI. So just phenomenal. It was just a cool class to be able to take to read his writings while he was the Pope and get get to know his thoughts. And he's widely regarded in almost any circles as one of the the premier theologians of the last 500 years, Protestant, Catholic, whatever. Like even a lot of Catholics or Protestants are like, oh, yeah, that dude was brilliant. You know, even if they disagree with, you know, the Eucharist, what he's talking about, they're like, that guy is brilliant. And uh, he said that he he thought he knew about 1% of the Catholic faith. Right, so, like he is probably the smartest Catholic that has lived in the last five hundred years, and he he had the humility to say, "Yeah, you know, I know about one percent of the church." I'm like, "Dang, I know about point zero 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 one," exactly. which is why I do an entertainment show and not an apologetic show. So well, yeah, I mean, you see, you see people right now. It's so disappointing and, and very frustrating for me at times where you see you see some Catholics, a lot of Catholics online, actually openly criticize and bash the Pope. Think about the Pope. And it's like the Pope's not going to go to your blog and take you and take your advice. Like, who do we think we are? It doesn't mean that we believe everything the Pope says is golden and comes from God. But this idea like, well, what does Pope Francis know about? What is this? What does the Vicar of Christ know about? I mean, it, it's it's really it's silly. And if like you said, if Pope Benedict says he only knows one percent, well, how much do Catholic bloggers or people tweeting on the internet, how much do they know about Catholicism? So yeah, it goes back to that humility thing. Go, maybe we don't know as much as we think we know. Thanks at Catholic dude underscore two, two, four for your brilliant conversation about what Pope Francis said. Exactly. (laughs) You know, and, and they probably don't even read what he actually writes. They just read people writing about what he wrote. You read the headlines about people writing about what he wrote. Yeah, it's, 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 that's I have find that a lot. There was one recently where, uh, yeah, where I went back and watched the actual video instead of reading. You know, I had to go from link to link. It's like this person yeah. says this. It's kind of like that old telephone game you play as a kid. You know, exactly. I whisper, you know, denim jeans to you, and then you whisper. Uh, denim, denim jeans to Sam, and then Sam repeats back to me, denim, denim, denim. You know, and it's like that's not what I said <laughs> at all. It's close, but not exactly what I said. Um, was it? Was there anything else? Like, so you talked about like the uh, knowledge or like a uh, heady things, like 
right. understanding of the church's teaching on homosexuality and and realizing that you disagreed with that. And after looking into it, um, you talked about mean Catholics, you know, Catholics being jerks. <laughs> Was there anything else that led to led to where you're at now? Yeah, you know, I, I finally started to kind of question. Okay, like I understand why the church teaches what it teaches, but what evidence do we have that the church that what the church teaches is true? For instance, yeah, there, we believe or the church teaches that the communion wafer becomes the body of Christ and it's transubstantiation. But do we believe that because there's evidence of that, or do we believe it because there's social pressure and it feels good to believe that with the community of others? And all the way up to the very basic question of the belief in God. It's very comforting for a lot of people. And a lot of times in my life, it was and is to believe that there is an all-powerful, all-loving creator God watching over everything. But on a basic level, how do we know that's true? And something doesn't become true or false based on how many people believe it. Ironically, that's what Catholicism taught me. Catholicism taught me that something is not true based on the number of people who believe it. So I started to kind of examine the basic claims of Catholicism in terms of, well, why do I believe this? And I got to the point where I stopped praying the, uh, the Nicene Creed during Mass because I was very uneasy with the idea of reading off a piece of paper what I believe. <laughs> and it was, I actually I had less trouble back in the old translation when we started the Creed by saying we believe because I'm like, OK, well, you know, this is kind of a group thing. But I had more trouble when the translation turned into I believe, when it, when it went back to more of the original translation saying I believe. And I found it kind of silly that I was supposed to believe the words of bishops in the third or fourth century who wrote the Nicene Creed. Now, I don't know if they're wrong, but I don't know if they're right. And either way, that's their creed. That's not my creed. So I stopped I stopped praying the creed and I started really kind of examining, why do I believe these things? And are these beliefs supported by evidence or are they simply supported by social consensus and because it feels good? I gotcha. So I I think I even heard you say earlier that like, you know, you're intellectually, you're looking at these things that the church taught and you're questioning them, which like you, we talked about questioning earlier. It's like, I, I have been in similar circles where it's like, if you ask a question, it means you don't believe strongly. And like I've been in ministry circles where if I ask a question, it means I'm not going to get asked to do the next ministry thing because, oh, Taylor doubts. It's like, no, right. if you're asking a question, it means that you're searching for an answer that you don't have. If you're actually asking the question and seeking the answer, you may as well just find it, you know? Um, right. So I, I think you're talking a lot about intellectual integrity. Like you want to believe, you want to, if you're going to say something, you want to actually believe it. So I, I'd like to ask you, like, when you, when when you have been struggling with certain things, whether it's things in the creed, does God exist? Does the does the body or the, does the bread and wine become Jesus? What's your process of of seeking out those answers? Well, my process would be sort of okay. What's the evidence? You know, is it's basically if there is no evidence, if now, there may be beautiful writings about it. Now, if I wanted to support Catholicism, if I wanted to support the teachings, I could find plenty of information of, of why the church teaches, in, for instance, transubstantiation. And if I wanted to debate a Protestant about whether it's 
right or wrong to believe in the real presence. I think the Catholic Church has a better position than the Protestants do in terms of Bible and tradition. But nonetheless, the teaching, in my view, is based too much on tradition, based too much on, well, this saint said so, this council said so. And in, in particular about transubstantiation, and by the way, if I have trouble saying transubstantiation, I'm about half a beer in, so it's only going to get worse. <laughs> so I just want to let you know. So I got to be careful with those four syllable words. But <laughs> the same council, uh, I forgot which council it was, you know, hundreds of years ago, which defined I think that's trans- five syllables, but I'm not yes. sure. I think, I think it was the fourth or fifth laddering tr- council. Transubstantiation. It's I six, I think. These days. <laughs> I don't know how syllables work. Transubstantiation is not some gay thing, okay? In case you don't know what that is. (laughs) I want to clarify that. We are doing this in, uh, what is it called? Gay Pride Month or whatever? Which, by the the way, um, so obviously, you know, I I know, or like I'm kind of with the Catholic Church on on the Catholic Church's teaching on homosexuality, but I have been getting some weird looks today because I'm wearing this shirt. That's a, a, a podcast. A friend of mine does a podcast that I support. I've helped her with. It's called Sinner Saint Sister. And I love this shirt and I'm wearing it to support her. But I realize that I'm wearing this during like Gay Pride Month and people are looking at me th- thinking, oh, does he actually support the Own it. A, other trans thing? And I'm like, well, no, Own that it, wasn't brother. really my intention. But I'm fine. I'm, I'm confident <laughs> enough in my masculinity to wear a shirt that says I'm a sister. Are you implying people that uh, are you implying that folks who are gay are not masculine? Uh, answer the other question. <laughs> <laughs> actually, if I can go back to what I was saying about transubstantiation, <laughs> this actually has a point. I brought up this this fourth Lateran council, whatever it was, because the same council, the same Catholic Church council that claimed to be inspired by the Holy Spirit and defined transubstantiation, that was the same council that said, "Oh, by the way, um, Jews should wear yellow stars." That became pretty popular among a certain group of people in Germany in the 20th century. So it makes it doesn't mean that transubstantiation is is false, but the fact that it's in the same document as this terrible idea of making Jews wear stars makes me at least a little bit suspect of the idea. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I I had never heard that, but I've heard similar things where it's like it you know Saint Augustine, Saint Augustine. You know, I actually had to struggle with that in college because when, when I was growing up, I thought that everything that saints said and did was from God. And then I right. would read saints and I'm like, I don't agree with that. And I don't think the church agrees with that. And, exactly. you know, even things like, like St. Saint Augustine and his his teaching on abortion is very different than what the church teaches now. But he also had these amazing writings that we love and we and we love his story. He's very inspirational. He's a doctor of the church. That doesn't mean that everything that he wrote was was infallible and, and right. correct. So um, one of the things can that... I, can I jump in real quick here? Sure. Just to be fair. I want to be fair as well to... I don't want to fall into the historian's fallacy myself where the idea that you know of, of judging people in the past by our current standards because people do that with like say the United States founding fathers. So I realize in my, in my discomfort with, with uh, the, the church years ago, centuries ago, saying that Jews should wear yellow stars, I realize that I can fall into that same historian's fallacy. So I would accept that criticism if that came up. But still, at the same time, it makes me doubt that the Holy Spirit was guiding that particular council. Right. Uh, and here's here's kind of uh, two follow-up questions. One on what you just said and then one from earlier. Sure. Um, 
one of the things that I find fascinating about the church, we kind of brought it up earlier, is that the church has, you know, guided by the Holy Spirit, has stood for 2,000 years, um, despite, you know, we talked earlier about the threats from outside, these bad emperors or whoever you think, you know, whoever you think was a bad leader that was, you know, hurting the church, but also from within. One of the things I find most fascinating isn't that, and, and uh, that to me um, <clears throat> proves that the Holy Spirit has been leading the church is our worst leaders, our worst yeah. popes, you know, where it's like we had some terrible popes that bought the papacy, that were womanizers, that had kids out of wedlock, that did all kinds of things, yet the Holy Spirit still, like the church still stands despite those right. idiots, you know? So, yeah. and I, I think, you know, so like for, for me at least at, at the council, it's like just because, at least how I look at it, just because they said one thing that was weird or strange or even wrong, uh, to me, it at least doesn't negate all the things that they said, because like for me, like e- even personally, like I in ministry, I- I'm hoping that the Lord is working through me at certain times. Now, that absolutely does not mean that it's <laughs> not all the time. I make mistakes. Right. Personally, I make mistakes in ministry. I say dumb stuff. I hurt people's feelings. I-, I hope that doesn't negate the good things that I have. You know, like the same kind of idea with the council. Uh, one thing that I want to ask you about looking at at history, and I've I've been listening to someone like Malcolm Gladwell's podcast and these other like history podcasts. Uh, what's the other one called? I can't think of the name of it. It's hardcore history is a good one. Uh, it's a really good one. Myths, you can check it out sometime. Myths and legends is the other one that I was thinking of. Right. And one one of the ideas that comes from this is, and you you could it kind of seems to me, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong that you're. It's I wouldn't have come up with the historic you know the historian thing as kind of a pushback on what you had said earlier, mm-hmm. but it's like the, you know, you're talking about evidence and how like kind of negating like the further away something was like talking about the Nicene Creed, the nice in the Nicene the Council of Nicaea and uh, something that somebody said a long time ago. How are you looking at like older evidence being evidence? Because it kind of seems like you're like, oh, this older stuff isn't evidence for me today in my faith. How are you looking at that within your own faith journey, within your own search for truth? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't um, I just don't find the writings compelling enough to believe them in the 21st century. I, I believe that. Back then, they had limited understanding of the world and the universe and of psychology. They didn't. They had the the idea of a psychological science that was centuries away from when the Bible was written. And I just believe that we have natural explanations for a lot of the phenomena that are described in the Bible. I don't believe that the people who wrote the Bible or the people who founded the church were bad people. That's that's one thing I don't like when I hear atheists talk about like religion. They're like, all right, well. Uh, a bunch of guys just wanted to control people, so they made up this story, these fairy tales, so they could control people. And then died for it. <laughs> exactly. You know, and I'm like, well, you know, just because – okay, just because – see, I, I, need, I don't know if I need to drink more. Ded- or dedication to a prank, man. If, yeah, <laughs> if I know, they made really. it all up, they're like, all right, I guess we don't want to say that we were joking, so we'll just all be murdered exactly. by lions. <laughs> but you know what I mean now? Those people, those – People dying for their faith doesn't make the faith true, but it's an indication that they at least very strongly believe. It's a hell of an argument. <laughs> yeah. right? it, it definitely shows that they believed or they, they were inspired to believe right. what they believe is true. So now is that evidence? I wouldn't call it evidence, but it's an indication. And I, I don't believe that there was some secret plot by evildoers 
to make up a religion to control people for 2,000 years. I don't believe that. <laughs> I think human psychology is a lot more complicated than that, and things sort of develop. Cults of personality develop. Again, all this stuff about Jesus may be true. It may not be true. I just don't find it compelling enough to put a lot of stock in it. I, I like hearing about Jesus. I like reading books about the Bible and biblical interpretations and genres and stuff. I think it's interesting. But I think there's so much that's ambiguous. There's so much that's in doubt that for me, the evidence is, isn't there to dedicate my life to a, a system of faith like Catholicism. It just, there's not enough evidence there. Right. It's kind of like the bottom line. Yeah, and, it, and it's interesting. As you've been talking, I've been thinking about about really one word, the more that we've been talking, because you've been, you've been, I can see that you've looked into this intellectually, you're struggling with it intellectually, and like, and you even mentioned earlier that you know, you could make arguments for the Catholic Church based on these intellectual things that you've seen. Like you, th- you know, you, I think you said earlier that you uh, you'd argue for Catholicism over Protestantism if you were going to argue for either. Absolutely. Um, so, what's interesting to me, and, and it's something that honestly I struggle with, which is I, why why I think I was so looking forward to talking to you and, and fascinated by your story, is because I think that you and I have a lot of similarities. Um, in, yes. in hearing in hearing your story, and one of the things that I've always kind of wrestled with the word that I've been thinking of is faith, because yes, I've like I've gone to school, you've gone to school to learn theological things. We've we've both looked into these things, and yes, I do think that the faith is logical. I think that it makes sense. Now there are some things that I still struggle with, questions that I have, questions that I don't fully understand, topics I don't fully understand. Um, and there is this role of faith, like transubstantiation, even if you gave the greatest argument for me, it's like, I I can sit in mass. This was, I I was talking about this on the radio a couple months ago. I went to a mass and it just kind of struck me during, during mass. I'm a person who believes in transubstantiation and I'm just sitting there like, yeah, you can pronounce it. Unlike me. Yeah. 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 But I'm sitting there and I'm like, wait, all of these people believe that that bread that was bread three minutes ago we're now going up and that's the body of a guy two thousand years ago who claimed that he was god and we all believe that he is like that's just fascinating to me it's like what like that absolutely takes you can give the greatest intellectual argument for that for the trinity which is you know we just had trinity sunday a couple weeks ago and they call it heresy sunday because nobody really understands it (laughs) we can have good arguments but yes there does take this this gift of faith this growth in 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 the virtue of faith. And I think that's something that I have struggled with. And I, th- I, th- I think I could, I would dare to say that you do too, um, yeah. just because of our similarities. And, and I, you know, looking at all these things, like the faith became very intellectual for me in undergrad and grad school to where it was like, okay, I have all these answers, but there's still these things that I have questions for that I'm asking that I'm not getting answers. I'm going to keep asking some of them. I got answered. Some of them I didn't. And some of those questions I still have. So, what like role do you think faith plays and where is like, what does that word mean for you right now today as we're talking? I, well, that's a very loaded word these days, you know, but one definition of faith, which is maybe a more negative definition is uh, social pressure to believe something when evidence is lacking. And I know that sounds very cynical, but I think, and that's the way I largely see faith these days, you know, and like, like I said earlier, you know, like believing something simply because it makes you feel good, that's not a compelling reason to believe something. You know, it's 
or believing something because everyone else does or people you respect believe the same thing, that's not really compelling enough. And for me, it just, the evidence just wasn't really there. It just, yeah, you know, it, I mean, to dedicate one's life to a religion and to say, I'm, there's certain things I'm going to do. There's certain things I'm not going to do based on this being true when there's not compelling reasons to believe it's all true in the first place. And I feel bad even saying that because I've met so many good friends through Catholicism. I met my wife through Catholicism. Some of the people who are closest to me throughout the years have been through the church. And I know that faith and religion, Catholicism and other religions, it's so comforting to a lot of people. And it's helped them through the most dark moments of their life, and it gives them joy and community. But I believe that you can have those things without feeling social pressure to accept beliefs that don't have any evidence to back them. You shouldn't have to accept absurd beliefs in order to be a moral person or even to be inspired by the story of Jesus. I don't know if that sounds too cynical, but well, I'm, I, I mean, it's not too cynical, but I think it is. You know, it's, it's one of those things. That <laughs> I, I think, and, and it's it's one of those things that, like, because of your experience, because you've been hurt by people in the church, because of your struggles within the church, yeah. it has it has morphed your under at least your understanding of faith it, to to be very different than what the church says. And like, I mean, honest, I, I mean, if we're being honest, it's kind of sad to me, you know. And like, I mean, I'm not pitying you or sad for you, but I'm sad on behalf of the church that the church failed you in that way, because it's like your definition of faith was almost the opposite of what the scriptures say, you know? Well, Taylor, uh, can, I jump, can I jump in, Taylor? Sure. I just want to say this too, and I, you know, before we were going to do this interview, I, I hesitated with the idea of mentioning that I had bad experiences with people in the church, because I was really afraid that anyone hearing that would sort of have the same view, go, well, Dan's just pissed off. And Dan is pissed off. That's true. But, you know, I, I really do believe that at one time my faith was mature enough to realize, OK, just because you have bad experiences with fellow Catholics, it doesn't mean that the church is invalid because of that. But my bad experiences, what they did help me do was give me the motivation to evaluate whether or not what I believed was true. You know what I'm saying? So, for instance, here, I'll, I'll, I'll be personal here. I work in commercial radio. A lot of people these days think that commercial radio is going to be gone in a few years, that there's no audience, that the business is going to fail. Now, I work in commercial radio, and I have positive experiences, and I like my coworkers, so I'm not really motivated to do research about why commercial radio sucks and it's going away. But if I got fired from commercial radio, you better believe that I'd be motivated emotionally to look up articles that talk about how radio sucks and the industry is going away because I have a negative motivation. So for me, it's the same thing with the faith. Once I had those bad experiences, it gave me kind of the motivation to really question my faith, where when Catholicism was a positive uh, part of my life, I wasn't motivated to look for ways to undermine my beliefs. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think all of us through our experiences have a lens that we look through at everything, you know, like through my experiences, good and bad with anything, it's it shapes how I look at faith, how I look at women, how I look at basketball, how I look at yeah. whatever, you know. And I women who play basketball, women who play basketball. Uh, yeah. are, you, are you trying to get me to say something that you think is offensive again? 
Yes. I'm not a fan of the WNBA. <laughs> if, if, that what you're, if that's what you're trying to get me to say. Um, yeah, but it, it is it is just do what I am. I am just a bad person. <laughs> um, <laughs> I bet you get mad at altar girls, too. huh? No, no, no. I'm fine with altar girls. I'm, I'm not okay. that Catholic. Um, Isolate that audio. Do, Never mind. Do, I'm yeah. so sorry. That was a, that was, I, speaking of a fan. Okay. I am so sorry. No, no. Move on. Move on. Move <laughs> sorry. on. No, no, no. You're fine. Um, yeah. So going back to this faith thing, it's like, you know, I, yeah. I, I, I pulled it up because I, I, I don't have it memorized, but I do kind of what it says. Like, uh, it's just, I find it fascinating that one of you, like, I think your walking walking away however you want to say it falling away uh wh- whatever your words i want to use your words what did you say De- you know recent almost complete deconversion yes. most people that are leaving catholicism are doing so just because it's no longer important to them that it's not really because of intellectual reasons now some it is like you mentioned homosexuality that's a big thing especially among young people you know people our age right. and younger um <clears throat> That is a big thing, but the majority of people are leaving just because it's like, it's not important to me anymore. It wasn't really an intellectual thing. It wasn't, but like, that's why I think it's really interesting that with you, like, you know the faith, like, you know what the church teaches yeah. and, and have actually tested these things intellectually, which, I mean, that, that is to be commended, you know, like I, I tell people who are trying to live as practicing Catholics to test these things. I mean, even the scripture says that test everything, retain what is good, you know, test even, right. even our belief systems and how it says now faith is the f- faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things, of things not seen. And I, I you know, like that's, that kind of right. brings back like all the things that both of us were saying about faith. It's like, okay, we can understand some of this intellectually, not all of it, that like faith is the, is the differentiator. Faith is the, okay. When I th- can't th- see things when I'm, struggling with you know believing a council from 1700 years ago when i'm struggling with whatever like faith is what allows me to move forward faith in god faith in the church um and and so i I think that's that that's a a big a big crux of this that i think is is fascinating with your story and your uh experience because it is it is so different from many people who are leaving yeah you know and and to clarify too i i don't really know how I would classify myself because for in practical terms, I'm still a practicing Catholic. I attend mass every week with my wife. I still receive communion. I'm sure some people would be horrified by that. And emphasis uh, on the, if I'd, I've been using that joke all week. So I've just, <laughs> I just, I just had to throw that out there. Thank you. So I'd be or if I'd, and, uh, you know, I, I, I still, we still donate to the church. So on paper, I'm still Catholic and still kind of going through the motions. Now, one big change I did make this year was my wife and I uh, stopped teaching confirmation class because I got to the point where, um, you know, we would teach as a team. So we'd be preparing the teaching. We'd be preparing the slides. And I would tell my wife, go, you know, I don't really feel comfortable teaching this slide. I don't really believe it or I don't really kind of, you know, word things that way. And slowly over time, I would start doing less and less teaching where we got to the point where my wife was doing all the teaching and I was just kind of on the computer advancing the slides for her in the PowerPoint because I, I didn't feel comfortable teaching any of the any of the, the doctrine. And I got to the point where I, I said, you know, I can't in good conscience present myself to a confirmation class, present myself in public as someone who wants to 
be a supporter of Catholicism, who wants to encourage kids to be Catholic. I miss those kids. I, I'm really glad for those of them who have found a lot of community and support in the faith. And if that works for them, I want them to continue. But I really just couldn't continue presenting myself as a teacher of something I just no longer believed or, or supported. But like I said, in practical terms, I'm still Catholic, which may be uh, frightening to some folks or offensive. They might, I don't want to get emails. People telling me not to take sacrilegious communion. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, Jesus said, take this, all of you, and eat it. And I do it because he said it. <laughs> and that's enough for me. And I don't need uh, Catholic bloggers, people on Twitter to tell me otherwise, unless they can supersede the words of Jesus which I don't believe they can. <laughs> and, and I think, I mean, one of the things that has been pervasive throughout our entire conversation is that you're being intellectually honest with yourself. Um, yeah. you're, and, like, you're being intellectually honest with, like, if you don't believe something, why would you teach it to somebody else, you know? Or if you're struggling, you want to be a liar. And, and, and so I think being intellectually, intellectually honest with yourself is a good thing. And, like, the church wants us to do that. You know, it even says that, you know, if... Uh, if you have a well-formed conscience and there's something in the faith that you don't believe, like then you're obligated to not believe. You're obligated to follow your well-formed conscience. Now we could talk forever about what well-formed means, but uh, we don't right. we don't need to get but into that, all but that. But that that's, uh, that teaching, I think it goes back to Vatican II, is not really repeated very often because I think some people are afraid that that would give one license to just kind of believe whatever they want to believe and just to willy-nilly discard teachings that they don't like. But in my interpretation of that teaching about well-formed conscience is that you, one is free to dismiss certain Catholic teachings after a period of really sincere examination. Like you can't just go, well, I think the church's teaching against contraception is stupid, so I'm going to ignore it. Right. But perhaps in very grave circumstances, I think even according to Orthodox Catholicism, if someone found himself in a situation where after a lot of study and prayer and discernment with priests that they needed to take contraception for, you know, some kind of medical reason, I, I do believe that that would be in accord with even the most conservative Catholicism. That's my opinion, at least. Right. And, and again, you're, again, you're being intellectually honest with yourself. So there are two two more things that I want to do before we wrap up our time. You mentioned you mentioned sure. your your wife and like, you know, the beginnings of y'all's relationship. And, you know, y'all were teaching confirmation together. I I met her when I still lived in San Antonio at some point between 2010 and 2012. I met her, didn't really know her. We follow each other on social media. So I know like a little bit about her, but really not much. And then when you had to leave to go to work, um, her her family had not arrived yet, a family or friends, I can't remember. So she came and, and she saw you talking to me. And then she was kind of, you know, looking for a place to sit. <laughs> there was nobody she really knew yet. So she came and talked to me and my wife. And we got to catch up for about 10, 15 minutes. I got to know her a little bit. Very, very nice, nice woman. You, you picked a good one. Um, Thank you. So one thing that, you know, like, because you and I had already talked about you, you and I talking about this at some point. Um, I didn't. One thing I didn't know about her is that she is currently, and has been for a long time, working in ministry. So yeah. obviously your your marriage is personal. So share what you want to share. But what is, what is like what does that look like for you guys at, in your marriage with like you know your your struggles with Catholicism and the church and her working in ministry within within the Catholic Church? Uh, what is how how do y'all navigate that? Well, sure. I, I think you know it's it's. It's challenging, but I think in a, in a good way, because communication is key, you know, and if there was a there was a long time where I just kept 
my grievances with Catholicism to myself, you know, but kind of slowly over time, I would tell my wife about them. And it's, it's good for me because it helps me stay humble a bit about my, my new beliefs because it keeps me from being really obnoxious and being cynical and being that stereotypical, you know, skeptic that you, that one may see online who just wants to fight with everybody and, and call religious people stupid. Cause I don't believe my wife is stupid. I don't believe the people she works for are stupid or evil or bigots or anything like that. And I don't, I don't believe you are or your listeners or well, people thanks. I work with in ministry. Yeah. You're not a bigot. <laughs> you got a really high bar there. <laughs> so, you know, it's so the best compliment I've received in weeks. <laughs> Taylor is not a bigot. I'm going to put that on the uh, iTunes review. Five star. <laughs> Thank All you. Right. I appreciate that. You know, and so as long I, as it's I, five star, I don't care what it says. <laughs> it keeps me humble. And honestly, I, in, it's helped me really discover that my wife and I have more in common than just our faith. Because I really do believe that it's, it's dangerous for couples if they get married. And the only thing they have in common is, hey, we're both really Catholic. Because feelings can change about religion. And sometimes, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll put it like this. Most of my ex-girlfriends have been Catholic as well. And most of those, well, all those relationships, except for my last one, <laughs> Didn't work out. Right. <laughs> so it takes more than just being Catholic. There's other values. There's other personality, you know, compatibilities that need to be, you know, evaluated. So it's helped my wife and I really kind of discover what we really have in common. That's more than just doctrine. And it's, you know, there is challenging at times, you know, and I, I'm careful about what I say publicly. It's, it, I, it's one good reason I deleted all my social media because I don't to avoid saying something embarrassing, but I, I am still respectful of the position that she's in, and I don't want to embarrass her with my comments. I don't want her to have to answer questions about me. Sometimes she has to, but, you know, so it helps me, it helps keep me, my wife still being a faithful Catholic, helps me from being obnoxious about it and keeps me humble going, okay, there is some value to it. There's some that, that she gets that I don't. And in a lot of Catholic traditional circles, you hear this idea that the man is the head of the household and the woman is the heart of the household. And for me, it's, it's a very humbling experience to kind of observe her and go, okay, well, the heart of this household, the faith is important to her. So maybe she's seen something that I don't see in it. So it keeps me from being too arrogant. I'm still arrogant sometimes, but it keeps me from being too arrogant. Yeah. Aren't wives the best? <laughs> are. Keeps me sane. Best thing I ever did. Get married. All right. So last question here, here's the deal. I want you to dream with uh -oh. me. So the, I, I found one thing. So obviously the, when you sent me the email, the deconversion from all, recent, almost complete deconversion from Catholicism. Right. So, um, and I didn't, what I didn't know until we started talking just a few minutes ago, um, <clears throat> that you're still going to church. You're still going to mass. Yeah. You're still doing these things. So, um, why, why almost complete and not complete? And if there if there is any if there is any sliver of hope, like dream with me. What 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 would the path look like? What would need to happen for you? What would somebody need to do for just to kind of turn it around? Obviously, you know, like sure. I'm not saying tomorrow you'd be the perfect, you know, perfect Catholic, whatever that means. But what would it take for the turnaround? What would it take? I'm just fascinated by, and I'm really interested in hearing why the almost why the almost complete and not complete. Well, I'll, I'll give three. There, there's a litany, uh, but I'll give three here. If the church would 
stop teaching that uh, God loves you, but if you make God sufficiently angry or if you don't uh, have the correct beliefs that he will torture you forever if the church rejected that teaching, if the church stopped being hyper-focused on genitals and genital activity, and if the church treated women equally, I would be more enthusiastic about Catholicism. But ultimately, though, even though all that, even if all that changed, I still wouldn't be convinced that living a life where one accepts supernatural beliefs that don't have evidence, I would not be convinced that that's a good way to live. Gotcha. Is that a dream or is that a nightmare? Was that <laughs> yeah. That was, yeah, that was, uh, we got into a litany of, uh, you, you were still answering the other questions of some of the reasons why you <laughs> left that we didn't get into. <laughs> That's what I, you know, and, and again, and honestly, like I, I, when I was super Catholic, I hated when people talked about how the Catholic church needed to change. Ultimately church doesn't need to change to be like, to, to, for my support. I mean, who the hell am I, honestly? Uh, ultimately the Catholic church can do whatever the Catholic church wants to do. Um, I don't, I'm not waiting around for the church to change this or change that. I think that's kind of an arrogant narcissistic attitude. So, Hey, this organization that's been around for 2000 years and has a billion people, uh, I think they should kind of uh, take my, my ideas under advisement. Not, you know, I I hope I'm not that arrogant, (laughs) you know know what I'm saying? Right. Um, but I would like to see, you know, kind of on a, on a more, (laughs) on a less cynical note, if, if in Catholicism, in Catholicism, if there was more of a culture of inquiry where it was okay to openly question things and to accept that people are different and for the faith to be based more on a community of love versus a tribe of fear. Because when people are fearful, they don't make rational decisions. And when people stop making rational decisions, people get hurt. And, and I th- – you. I had a follow-up question that you already answered. So my follow-up question, because your, your first your first three, like me and my audience cannot control your first three things, <laughs> like the changing of the church's teaching. Like, you can't we, start we, like, a, what do you call it? The, uh, what's that? What's that? Petition.org? Yeah, as a, the, our, own, our own offshoot. But but yeah. like the, the follow-up question that I had, I said I asked you the last question, but then I really did because I didn't have to ask it because you answered it. Like the, the what, you know, for, for me – for my producer who's here listening now, for the people who are listening on the podcast, what can we do? And I think you already answered it. Like cultivating, being okay with questions. Like it has to start somewhere. Yeah. If the if the church as a whole or many people struggle with this idea of questions, me, my audience, you know, the little group of us, that's our encouragement to start. You know, it has to start somewhere. It has to start with us. Yeah. And I, I think it's starting in pockets. You know, I, I've been in communities where I, you know, I already mentioned where I struggle, you know, I asked questions and people <laughs> looked at me like I was stupid. And then I've also been in, in, in communities where asking questions was fine and, and cultivated. So, um, yeah. and, and then that community of love, you know, the community of people that, that love each other. I mean, that's, that's the primary re- reason why Jesus, Jesus came. So Dan, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank sure. you for your honesty. Um, and, uh, and for not say- saying that I'm not a bigot, I'd really appreciate that. <laughs> Uh, but can, I say one, can I say one thing before we wrap up here? I, I, I'm sorry to your producer, Sam. I know I've been keeping you for so long. There. She's very Before hungry. I I, I, Sam, I, am I going to take you to dinner after this and buy you dinner for staying extra? Is that what I'm doing? She says yes. I'm going to buy her dinner but after this. I will say back when I was a super kind of obnoxious Catholic, I thought there was only two reasons that people would reject the faith. One either had to be ignorant or arrogant. I thought you either don't know the church, what the church teaches or you just don't like it. And – I've learned, and hopefully others who struggle with Catholics who don't like the faith or criticize the faith, there's so many reasons why people would reject religion. 
thousands of reasons. And ultimately, you don't know somebody's story. So if you hear somebody complaining about church or religion or just listen to them because you don't know their story and don't make assumptions about them. And maybe they can actually teach you something. I'll leave it at that. Cool. Thank you, Taylor. Thank you, yeah. Sam. Thank you. Sam shakes her head. Yes, she's not talking on the, on the <laughs> microphone. But, dude, really appreciate your time. Uh, my my best wishes to you, your Thank wife. You. Um, yeah, just thanks for sharing. And I and I I I'm thinking that you know this interview will make it's made me think. I've seen Sam, who uh, typically doesn't listen when I talk, but she's been listening pretty attentively to <laughs> to you talk. And uh, I think it's going to give us things to talk about. My, my listeners, things to talk about. Because um, obviously, right. we're in a church that, of 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 imperfect people and uh and we all have questions so how like how can how can me how can sam how can our listeners wrestle with these things because i think that's what right. we're, we're called to do so uh thanks again man blessings to you and uh yeah i hope to talk to you again soon all right thank you taylor and if god exists i hope he blesses you as well thank you i appreciate that see you later man. Okay. Bye. good night <laughs> bye Hey everybody, it's Taylor. I hope that you enjoyed that uh, bonus episode of the podcast. Obviously something pretty different than what we normally do. I want to thank my buddy Tony Vicinda for giving me the idea for this and for obviously for Dan for coming on and sharing his story. Obviously he and I uh, disagree on some things and have different views of, of the church and all that sort of thing. But I do think that I have a lot of similarities with him uh, when it comes to like who we naturally are. Uh, some of the same struggles I've had, and we've just come out on different sides of the, of the bar, but that's why I was so fascinated to talk to him because of the similarities that he and I have. So uh, let me know what you thought about this. This is obviously very different than our, our normal show. Uh, you can let me know on social media at Taylor Schroll, S-C-H-R-O-L-L on Twitter or Instagram or on Facebook. Just search Forte Catholic or you can send me an email, taylor at fortecatholic.com. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, let me know what you thought. I, I hope it was something. It's It let me think. Me and Sam just got back from uh, going to get some dinner right after recording this and we were able to kind of talk through it and you know how do we as Catholics respond to some of the issues that Dan brought up so uh, God bless you Dan hope things go well for you and uh, let's let's keep him and his wife in our prayers and just go from there what did we learn from this and how can we move forward peace